Everyone still looks uncomfortable. Perhaps they all remember that old saying, power corrupts. Welcome to Second Officer Slog. I'm your host, M. With me is regular co-host Jackson. Hello! Welcome to Star Trek. This is the seventh episode of Star Trek. That's not true. We're actually <laughs> watching like the eighth or twelfth, something like that. But uh, this, is the seven, this is the seventh episode of this podcast, which is good yes, enough is. for you. And it's good enough for me. And, wait, they're both me. No, I was referring <laughs> to the audience, not you. Okay. All right, yep. fine. Been a bit of a long day and a bit of a long week. <laughs> How's Star Trek going? Terrible. I hate it. That's we are two weeks away from Discovery. <sighs> I want to get Enterprise Season 2 done before then. That's my that's my only goal. I'd like to watch a bunch of Enterprise in the next few weeks. But We are like four hours away from the premiere of Orville. Are you going to edit in some like crickets absolutely not you're editing this one then maybe (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna watch orville i'm going i am i am committed to watch at least like maybe like two episodes you're Uh, going to watch orville until we record a podcast uh what do you mean that's four episodes of orville and then you will check in Oh, no, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, if if both if t- if I watch two episodes and they're both terrible, then I will stop. If okay. if it's like tolerable, I will probably continue. How low is the tolerable bar? Uh if they are better or equal to the book we are talking about today, I will continue to watch them. Okay. The book we read today is one of the worst books I have ever read in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so, when I said how low is the tolerable bar, that's low. It's low. How low can you go? Lower than this, apparently. Oh. I almost said Todd McFarlane. It's a different. If I would, I would 100% be here for Todd McFarlane's Star Trek. Todd McFarlane's fake Star Trek? Yes. God. Oh. Yes, no, you're right. You're right. Look, we've got comics to read at some point. Yeah, we don't no, know how, don't. how ridiculous they could be. I don't think Todd McFarlane's probably ever made a Star Trek comic, but I don't, don't think know. he has either. But I'm sure there is at least one that could be described as Todd McFarlane esque. <sighs> so, since with that out of the way, we're going to cover today two episodes and the book. Of course, the book is deep in the DS9 relaunch, so only listen to these first two episodes if you don't want DS9 spoilers. But the episodes are probably going to take up a good chunk because the book is bad, and we'd rather talk about the episodes. The episodes are. The Conscience of a King from the original series. Friday's Child from the original series. And uh, the book will be This Grey Spirit, uh, which is from the DS9 relaunch. Uh, we'll cover those in the, the, the respective segments. If you are not following us through to the end of this podcast and are bowing out in the second half, uh, the episodes for next month are Journey to Babel, the original series, season two, episode 15, and Sarek, TNG, season three, episode 23. We're going to get a double dose of Sarek. It's going to be good. It's Sarek time. Yep. 
It's like Mario time, but it's way just more like logical. Mario time. <laughs> Sarek and Mario might as well be the same person. Thank Sarek you. Sarek so also nice. is not a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> this is for nobody. We need to move on to the next segment. <laughs> Much like Sarek, Mario keeps dating human women. <laughs> <laughs> We're done, we're done. Next segment, next segment. Music, music, music. The skies are green and glowing Where my heart is Where my heart is Where the scented luna floor is glowing Somewhere first episode this month is the conscience of a king of the king sorry not a king no definite articles that's what those are called right y- yeah. i used to be an english major <laughs> yes the is the definite article yes uh this is the original series of season one episode 12 this first aired in december of 1966 this episode takes place in the year 2266 unsurprisingly uh we open on a performance on the planet Q of the uh, Car- Caridian. It's just the Caridian company, like Shakespeare company, right? Uh, you, you I mean, know. it's not their planet, but yes, the Caridian but they're, company. They're performing. Yeah, the Caridian company is performing Hamlet, and it's very dramatic. Nope. They're performing uh, Macbeth. Macbeth. Oh, right. Hamlet's after that. Sorry. My apologies. Uh, And uh, Kirk is there watching with his friend, Dr. Thomas Layton. And Dr. Tom has a suspicion that Anton Caridian, the leader of this company, is actually Kodos the Executioner, who notoriously, as we find out, sees control of Earth Colony Tarsus IV back when Kirk and Dr. Tom and a bunch of other people were younger and executed half of the population during like a food shortage because of a virus. And Kirk survived and Leighton survived and... Uh, they're like, oh, he d- escaped because the body was found, but it was never positively identified. And everyone just assumed it was Kodos. And maybe he escaped as this actor. And Kirk's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll look into it. And then Tom shows up dead. And Kirk's like, hmm, this is very suspicious. Meanwhile, Kirk is hot for Kodos's daughter. Or, sorry, Anton Caridian's daughter. <laughs> please, Lenore. tension. Tension in the sun, please. <laughs> uh, and they just make eyes at each other while Kirk is, like, investigating her father to by being, a, like, like an actual, like, eugenicist war criminal. And that, uh, that conflict of interest is real. And he's very testy about it. And Spock is like, hmm, Captain's testy about something and told me not to investigate this. What if I investigate this? And uh, turns out that everyone who could have positively identified Kodos has been murdered, except for Lieutenant Kevin Riley and James T. Kirk. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Kevin Riley also serves aboard the Enterprise. <laughs> yes. Uh, meanwhile, Lieutenant Riley 
is like, oh, we need to put him in engineering where like he can be like out of the way and maybe no one will notice. Uh, Lieutenant Kevin Riley gets himself poisoned. It's chocolate milk sprayed with <laughs> index <laughs> as he is listening to Lieutenant Uhura perform a song. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. But anyway, uh, he survives, thankfully, due to the administrations of Dr. McCoy. Uh, Spock and McCoy confront Kirk, and then Kirk is threatened with execution or an assassination attempt, blah, blah, blah. He confronts Kodos. Kodos is like, maybe I'm Kodos, maybe I'm not. Um, they do a voice print thing. There's a lot of talk about regret and memory. And uh, then during a performance of... Uh, this one's Hamlet, right? This time. This, this final one is Hamlet, yes. Yes, during a performance of Hamlet that the Caridian players are giving aboard the ship as a payment for the Enterprise ferrying them around, uh, Lieutenant Riley, who had heard Dr. McCoy expounding the plot of this episode into a <laughs> microphone, grabs a phaser and tries to kill Kodo or Caridian. Caridian slash Kodos, whatever. Uh, and Kirk stops him, and then in the brouhaha that entails, uh, it is revealed that actually. Uh, Caridian is not trying to kill everyone who's ever seen him. It's his daughter, Lenore, who has been trying to protect her father because he is the greatest man who's ever lived and he will perform around the galaxy and every star will shine bright with the performance of the Caridian players. And uh, then she tries to shoot Kirk and he jumps in front of it and gets shot and dies and she's all messed up about it. And uh, that's kind of the end. <laughs> the end question mark? Uh, I don't think we said this episode is written by Barry Trivers. Oh, right. Sorry. That's on me. Yes, yes, yes. My apologies. That's okay. Uh, Yeah. Um, This episode is like really dramatic and arch and like it's all played very straight. But because it is kind of the most like 60s sci-fi teleplay, I thought this episode was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) So the two episodes we have are both hilarious. Uh, The other one more intentionally so. This one is less knowing. Uh, They're both very, very funny. I didn't really like this episode very much, but it was still mostly enjoyable. Um, Of the episodes we have chosen this far, these are the two most peak Star Trek, which we'll get into what we mean through these discussions, because, oh my God, does a lot of nonsense happen. Jackson, Jackson, (laughs) this is Ronald D. Moore's favorite episode of the original series. Okay, that's fine, Ronald D. Moore. That seems like a very Ronald D. Moore opinion. I actually want to read this quote because I think it's actually really interesting. Because it, it, if you didn't, if you watch this episode and you weren't us and just laughed at how goofy it is a lot of the time, <laughs> and you read and you read it the way Ronald D. Moore did, it actually does sound a lot of like the things we like about Deep Space Nine. And I think it's yes. like worth reading because it's a good. Mm-hmm. It's from an AOL chat in 1997. Thank you, Memory Alpha, for preserving the dumbest things on Earth. <laughs> Ronald D. Moore did regular AOL chats. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, yeah, AOL chats were like a real thing, but when you think about it in 2017, it's ludicrous. Also, oh, this AOL quote is 20 years old. Oh, fuck off. AOL keyword. Uh, read the quote. I think it's important to put it, take it out. I liked the backstory of Kirk as a young man caught up in a revolution and the nightmarish slaughter by Governor Kodos. I liked the Shakespearean overtones to the episode as well as the use of the plays themselves. And I absolutely loved Kirk in this episode. A troubled man haunted by the shadows of the past. A man willing to lure Caridian to his ship under false pretenses. Willing to do one of his more cold-blooded seductions on Lenore. Willing to fight with his two closest friends and risk his entire command in the name of justice. Or was it vengeance? Kirk's aware of his own lack of objectivity, his own flaws to be in this hunt for a killer, but he cannot push the burden away and refuses to pull back from his quest to track down Kodos, no matter what the cost. It also has some of my favorite lines in TOS. 
The scene with Spock and McCoy in Kirk's quarters is one of the series' highlights. The brooding tone and the morally ambiguous nature of the drama fascinated me and definitely influenced my thinking as to what Trek could and should be all about. Yep. Uh, you can tell, because that's it's very DS9 in that way. Like We watched Duet a few weeks ago. It was one of our early episodes that we watched, and th- that's almost a, like a redo of this, of... Uh, someone who has been in an awful situation finds the person responsible and basically spends the entire episode waffling as to whether or not it's actually them, even though it's clearly them. Even though in duet goes like the twist the other way, but in this one it's just clearly obviously them. Yep. Uh, the um the stuff that uh he's talking about about uh spock and mccoy is actually some of my favorite stuff the stuff that i think is most successful in this episode because kirk is clearly doing shady stuff because the players were not supposed to be brought on the ship and he like he arranged for their original transport to be canceled because he's conducting his investigation and then when spock questions about it he's very shady about dodging it all and so spock's like hmm, i'm gonna take up this research on my own and then he tries to talk to mccoy about it and mccoy is like literally in his in sick bay pounding back drinks being like spock <laughs> join me don't think about this the captain's gonna do what the captain's gonna do and we're it's not our place to question it. And Spock's like, no, I think it is my place actually to question what the captain's doing when it is like against orders and against common sense. And they all basically get in a big fight about it. And so much of the way that like Star Trek can be easily dismissed by people who like are more like weaned on modern television is like, oh, everyone just gets along and there's no interpersonal conflict. This is like the this is a weirdly like off model version of Star Trek where everyone just kind of like snipes at each other and doesn't trust each other in a way that I find really strange. Like I know this is early in the original series, but this doesn't read like how I read Star Trek. This is like how I read Enterprise. Yes, for sure. Uh it's it's strange because um in any other show uh, in Star Trek, when, or I guess not Enterprise, but in most other shows, like in TNG, if the same plot happened, if suddenly Picard brought like a weird group of um, actors aboard a ship uh, and started demoting people and didn't tell anyone why, everyone would go, oh, he's doing a thing, it's fine. Well, I don't know what it is, but he's doing a thing. He's clearly doing a thing. Uh, <laughs> where Spock is like actually worried that Kurt could be committing, like making really bad decisions in a way that just the audience would never buy because there's never the... Te- like, you, you don't do that to your main characters. It's fine. They're like, everyone knows it'll be fine. The drama comes from other places. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and the, also, uh, Roland D. Moore being like, this was like the most dramatic, most beautiful like sequence of this show is punctuated by the fact that this scene actually ends with them in Kirk's room with a phaser shoved in a weird drawer that's like at the top of his door frame and then Kirk yelling for double red alert which is not a real thing <laughs> uh and the, the the scene begins or the this section of the scene begins with Kirk like hearing the phaser be overloaded and goes oh shit things are things are about to kick off and behind him Spock like framed in an almost deliberate comedy way pulling out drawers and throwing clothes on the floor yeah <laughs> while kirk delivers his like double red alert monologue and Spock just throws i feel i feel like i feel like the first place i would look is the weird compartment above the door that holds nothing other than a phaser <laughs> yes and where it eventually is is just in a phaser sized compartment <laughs> that's apparently has no other use it's like really hard to reach like why would you even put a drawer there i don't understand and then he like throws it 
in in a garbage chute. Yeah, in a garbage chute, which I assume uh, throws it out to space, and they just wreck, like shake with the force. It's not like it explodes in the ship. Yeah, but like it's all very like offhanded, silly in a way that Star Trek. Like it doesn't. That's not what happened. There's no garbage chutes. Just jettison. You put your you put your like waste in the chute, and then it falls out into space because that tube goes to space. That's not how anything works. It's very silly. Uh, it's very dumb, <laughs> but it's kind of like uh, par for the course. This episode is like very arch. Like Kirk, like coming on to this lady as he's like investigating her father and playing it very straight and like, oh, I'm I'm actually here for you. And then they're like walking in the observation lounge, uh, like observation deck at night, and like the lights are dimmed, and she's like, oh, this ship, powerful and throbbing, and it's just the most <laughs> everything. <laughs> she does say. How does it feel to be in command of this powerful and throbbing ship? What would you do with all that power? And he's like, oh, well, not not really that much, actually. Yeah, you know. But then she also, like, like once she realizes that he's investigating her father for being Kodos, she wheels on him and is like, you're trying to bring this man to justice for killing 4,000 people. That's not very human of you. As if the compassionate thing is just let him go. Well, there's a lot of this in this episode, and we're going to talk about this in the book. And it's one of my frustrations with not just Star Trek, but a lot of, like, well-meaning sci-fi written by, uh, like, generally well-meaning people uh that are usually too rich uh to like understand anything about like how actual morality works there's a lot of the posturing about oh is this justice or is this revenge like there's a scene where uh like mccoy goes and if this is kodos like and you and you like kill him that's not going to bring the people back and i'm like no it's not but he killed four thousand people mccoy he killed four thousand people yeah I mean, so the argument is that there was, like, the, the actual thing was, like, the food shortage was real, and he did, like, decide, oh, I need to kill half the colonists to let the other half live on what we have left. And he just did that. The thing that happened is that, like, shortly after that, like, supply ships that weren't supposed to get there in time got there faster than they were supposed to, and they were resupplied. And so he went down as, like, this monster who slaughtered half the colonists and not, like, he's like, if that hadn't happened, I would be considered a hero because I saved half the colonists instead of everyone dying. Um, but this episode doesn't really grapple with that. It just grapples with the fact that, oh, he killed all these people and he, he has to pay. But does Kirk want him to pay too much? <laughs> yeah, like the morality questions, like even that, oh, the ships came in and I would have been a hero otherwise. It's like a kind of dumb uh morality idea like yeah but like by centering but but centering kirk's decision as like the actual like yeah moral center of this episode really misses all of the nuance of even that discussion which isn't because, like particularly nuanced but it's better than this because the um the like episode climaxes with um riley kevin riley my star trek character man kevin uh i don't know why that's not very star i trek like i like that he is like the most archie comics looking 60s motherfucker <laughs> in the entire world oh Yes, no, with his chocolate milkshake. Yep. Uh, Continue what you want to say, and then we'll talk about the chocolate so, milk. Like, yeah. <laughs> Star Trek's so dumb. <laughs> so the actual climax, one of the climaxes is he comes up and is like, I have to murder him because he murdered my like mother and my father like in front of me. He is one of the most evil people, and he has been like ensuring that he can't be found. He has to die. And then Kirk's like, no what would this make you you have to put, put the gun down that is the be- the right thing to do and i'm like oh piss off he killed 4000 people it's fine <laughs> but also like 
if he had murdered Kodos and it like left Kirk off the hook for like, oh, this kid acted rashly, so Kirk didn't have to. Like, I don't like how that decenters like Kirk's decision is irrelevant because another person took the action. Like, I think that's that still bad happens. Also. I guess it does, but in a different, like, more arch way that is, like, a different t- track on everything. Yeah, like, all of the ways the climax folds in on itself are super 60s. Like, you said it was super Twilight Zone-y, yep. uh, and you're totally right. Uh, and not in ways that, and, like, I'm being too mean about this episode, because it is, he does, his, his, his Febreze poisons his chocolate milk. Like, it's pretty amazing. So, okay, we're just going to talk about this. So, in the sequence, like, Riley's moved from communications engineering to, like, basically get him out of the way, because... Kirk is doesn't tell anyone that his life might be in danger, but realizes that Riley's life might be in danger. So he sends him to engineering where it's just dark and sad and empty. And so he's sitting there, like, tending this station that no one's at. Because this Enterprise is, like, really, like, I don't, I guess maybe it's just the original series, but this is this ship feels empty a lot of the time in mm. a way that TNG never does. Not enough extras budget. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he's sitting there and he, he's, like, in communication with the, like, the lounge the cafeteria i don't know exactly it's like a place where people are playing 3d chess and 3d like connect four and uhura's sitting there with a harp and he's like oh lieutenant uhura please play me a song i'm so sad down here and so she plays this song called beyond antares which is uh written by wilbur hatch lyrics by gene l coon and uh is played by like the song is actually sung by nichelle nichols and it has like all this accompaniment blah 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 anyway it's this ridiculous love song played on, quote-unquote, a Vulcan harp, which is a harp, a piano, and a guitar. Uh, and is the sappiest, sixtiest bullshit sci-fi thing I've ever seen in Star Trek. It's a lot. It's a lot. It, it, it's Look up Beyond Antares or look up Uhura's song. You'd probably get it from that and listen to it. It's it's It feels like it comes from like a decade before this show to me yeah it's very silly um anyway while he's listening to that and like making love eyes at nobody in particular a (laughs) shadow comes from behind and sprays windex into his chocolate milk because beside him is like his dinner which in the world of star trek is probably nutritious but looks like a glass of chocolate milk and a plate full of now and laters uh because every bit of food is just a weird like primary colored cube it's such a different like future version because by the time tng happened it's just oh we have replicators and you just say nice food and then nice food arrives yeah but they always have like the most like specific to their culture and sensibility type of food like everyone (laughs) in star trek in everyone in tng and ds9's like food choice is like in the character bible of they order this kind of food because they're this kind of character yep it's like yeah there's probably something super you know uh a fucking uh, O'Brien orders a Guinness from the replicator. Like, <laughs> there's <laughs> literally an episode about how Keiko makes like health, like microbiotic health food, and he's grumpy about it. God, I was saying that as a hilarious <laughs> exaggeration. <laughs> no, it's, it's not that because he tries to get her to have haggis. I think that happens in TNG. He's Irish. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh. I forgot about the haggis plotline. <laughs> um, but then he drinks the Windexed milk and he drops it. And it is canonically some sort of milk because when they detect the poison, it's like, oh, they use it because it, it looks like milk. It, w- it would have blended right into his chocolate milk. Well, it's even dumber than that because they're like, oh, uh, this is a substance found here. It's a milky substance that could have ended up in that accidentally. We don't know if this was actually a, a, a tampon attempt on his life and there's like 
it's obvious from minute one that this guy is is Kodos, that everything has actually happened how everyone thinks it has. And Spock's the only one who like knows that apparently everyone else is like, oh, it's like Hot Fuzz. It basically becomes Hot Fuzz as they go like, what makes you think it was murder? And Spock is like, because it was. Am I going insane here? Captain. <laughs> it's really weird because when Kirk confronts uh, Kodos about it, uh, the reaction to Kodos is like, that he has to all this it, like it, it's weird because it's played like in a way where you could read it in that maybe he doesn't remember or maybe he is traumatized and blocked it out as much as he recognizes it as a thing mm-hmm. um but the actor is like the most like 30s 40s theatrical actor so he is just overacting the hell out of every scene oh it's a lot and it's not bad it's it's just weird in the like it it is overpowering to a show like star trek I mean, like, there are times when Star Trek gets ridiculous and theatrical, and I'm very on board. Yep. I really liked um, uh, that episode with the Romulans, the Balance of Terror, uh, yeah. that we watched the other other time, which is another very, you know, a dramatic and arch original series show. But I like that one a lot. Uh, this one I liked a bit less. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, this is not, like, as great of an episode. Yeah, the the weird off model Kirk and, and Spock are the things that really like McCoy is just kind of McCoy because he's he can be surly in any version of this show, but uh, those two being the way they are in this episode, it almost feels. So the thing, I guess the thing when I watch this, uh, the Kirk and Spock depicted here remind me a lot of the Mirror Universe versions of those characters. Yes, and it's really strange, like. This is because I've always read Mirror Universe because of the way it's depicted in later Star Trek as like this wild cartoon inversion, evil version of these characters. <laughs> but if you look at this episode and you look at Mirror Mirror, they're not that different. No, like the universe is different, but the characters are basically pretty similar. And what that says about the Mirror Universe doesn't really gel with the rest of Star Trek, but it is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. 60 Star Trek is weird. I'm glad that we're going back and discovering it ourselves. Yep. Um, two uh, trivia notes, uh, if you also don't read Memory Alpha about all these episodes, but you know. Um, Kodos, of course, is one half of the aliens Kodos and Kang, uh, both named after Star Trek. They're Simpsons aliens. You know the ones. Uh, and also, this is the first episode that has the proper commuter, computer voice for the Enterprise. It's true. Finally. Yeah. yeah. Go figure. Took him a while. It's also like the last episode that, um, oh, uh, what's her name? Yeoman Rand was in. Yes. Yeah. I didn't realize she uh, Grace Lee Whitney. Yeah. Grace she Lee was, Whitney, yes. she was, uh, fired for alcoholism, but also is it her that there's like the, uh, sexual, alle- like abuse allegations? I don't know. Or is there's it someone some... else? I don't... There's, so <laughs> there's a thing we want to get into someday where we can do more research, but there's definitely some shady shit that happened on this like set of Star Trek. Uh, specifically about Gene Ronbury and I think one of the other producers. Turns out that the men running a television show in the 60s were fucking monsters. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we don't really like get into it every episode, but also fuck Gene Ronbury. He seems like a, maybe probably a bad guy. He does. And also he ruined Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, also he doesn't know what's good about Star Trek. Uh, that's the thing. If we ever cover a lot of early TNG, we will probably complain a lot about Roddenberry-isms. <sighs> Because I mean, we didn't, fuck. we didn't, we didn't bring him up in Haven, but I can lay it at his feet. Yep. No, that's fair. God. Jackson, do you want to cover yes. our next episode? I am so excited to talk about Friday's Child. Okay. So, uh, Friday's Child is episode three of season two of the original series. It aired uh, 
the 1st of December 1967, which means it take, takes place in 2267. Written by DC Fontana and directed by Joseph Pevney, which who, I think both of those have made appearances on this show before. Oh, DC Reckon. Fontana is like one of the, she's like one of the most prolific yeah. Star Trek writers. Yeah. It's, uh, and I'm fairly sure we've watched a Pevney directed episode. Yeah. I recognize that name. I'm Jackson, also... what happens in this episode? <laughs> so it starts like weirdly in media res for Star Trek of their mid meeting as Bones is explaining the violent but uh, respectful society uh, of Capella 4 with the Capellans who are discovered that this planet that they are on has a bunch of... Uh, of rare metals that are used in mining. So the Federation have dispatched... It is, uh, it is specifically the rare mineral topoline, which is uh, interesting only in that it does not sound like a Star Trek thing at all. It really doesn't. You're right. Yep. Uh, so they dispatched the Enterprise to go and secure the right mining rights and... Uh, uh, <laughs> Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and some guy, Lieutenant Grant. <laughs> I was watching this with my partner, Destiny. She's like, oh, that guy is new. <laughs> I wonder what's going to happen to him. Like, fully knowing, but not knowing how quickly he would instantly get owned. <laughs> yes, uh, they beam down to the surface, and then uh, they discover that on the surface, there is a Klingon already there. They had not detected a Klingon ship, but a Klingon is on the surface of Capella 4. And so... Uh, Grant just, yeah, Grant just Grant just grabs his phaser. He's like a Klingon and grabs his phaser, which is a mistake on Capella. Uh, because the Klingon just immediately throws a knife at no, him. No, it's not the Klingon. It's one of the Capellans because they it's like an affront to their uh, like hospitality. Oh right, yes, yes. Just right, throws a dagger directly into his chest. They have their specific like dagger situation. Yep. Um, and it's also a very weird opening segment because there's no captain's log. If the captain's log comes after the title card, you don't actually know any of the stuff about Topoline yet. Yep. <laughs> so they just kind of beam down out of nowhere, uh, and this red shirt gets fucking owned. And then the episode, uh, so the episode starts, they negotiate for the mining rights between the Klingon and the, the Federation. And they're like, oh, you can't trust the Klingon. The Klingon is one of conquering. Like, yes, we do not agree with your violent culture, but we will not interfere with it. We will not, like, turn you into our empire. We will stay away. That is the Federation's way. Uh, and they, like, have a little discussion about this. But then um, the Tia, who is called Akar, is challenged by the other, like, other Capellan called Marb or Maab. <laughs> Uh, and Akaar dies, and so Marb becomes the new tier and is now in con- in command of the Capellans. Um, Akaar's wife has to kill herself and her child, as uh, according to some unknown law of the Capellans. But Kirk stops her because you know he cannot allow a woman so beautiful to die because he is Kirk. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> so what happens is in the middle of the night. All four of these people, uh, Spock, Kirk, McCoy, and this woman. Her name, is... by the way, is Eleen. Like, it's uh, Ellen, but the E is doubled because they always have double. Fucking uh... Star Trek. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, they escape and just run off into the mountains. And the rest of the episode is the Capellans uh, kind of following them around as Bones begins to bond with her. The details of which we will get into later. <laughs> Meanwhile, up in space, 
Come on, the Enterprise. Up, up in space, nothing happens. No, something does happen. Command the Enterprise falls to Scotty, which is weird. I feel like that's not the way it would have gone, but then I forget that TOS is a much lighter show in terms of cast than TNG. <laughs> I would have assumed that like Sulu would have got it before Scotty, but I forget that this is before... Uh, Before all George of that K. was relevant, yes. Like, I mean, he was there, but like, yeah, I feel like if that show had happened maybe in the third season, it probably would have fallen to Sulu. Mm-hmm. Well, I just mean that like, George Takei being like of the status he is and like as an actor is why he got his own ship by the end of the movies. Like, that yeah. is a movie politics thing, not a character thing. Yep. Uh, anyway, Scotty's in charge of the Enterprise and is like being very ridiculous about it. And so uh, there's a there's another ship that calls for a distress call, so they have to go uh, deal with it. But it turns out there's no ship there, and actually it's a Klingon trap. And then they run to the Klingons, and will they be able to get back in time? As they like stare down the Klingons, and Scotty's like, "We're gonna head straight for them. Red alert! It's time to go." Uh, and we cut back to Capella, where Kirk and Spock have fashioned bows and arrows, and they talk about how these. Uh, it turns out the Capellans have not um, <laughs> developed bows and arrows. So, they, they, yeah, like, they haven't developed bows and arrows, but they have throwing daggers that they've used to great effect already. Like, it's not like they don't have long-range weapons. No, they just don't understand what how to tie a string to a thing. Uh, we'll get to it. <laughs> and so they hold themselves up ready as in a cave, McCoy is with... Uh, newly new friend, Ellen, 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 Jesus Christ! And the baby is born in the cave. Ellen runs away, leaving the baby with McCoy, running back to to Mob, and saying that like I must go die in my room now. It is our way. Mob turns to her and goes. No longer do you have to. I take your burden. Your life, my life, is now forfeit instead. Uh, in the ensuing conflict, as they reveal themselves, the Klingon, like, <laughs> I forget the the way of events, but basically it becomes a three way standoff between the Capellans, the Klingon, and Spock and Kirk, and so Marb goes up to the Klingon and goes, "Put down your disruptor!" and like basically, arms out. Let us fight as men. The Klingon instantly shoots him with a disruptor and vaporizes him. <laughs> yep. And uh, then the Capellans are like, that's not honorable, and throw daggers at him until he dies. <laughs> <laughs> because he, although he has way better weapons, only one Klingon came down to the surface, which, as we all know, rookie mistake. Yeah, Idiot no. move. <laughs> he is his own red shirt and gets promptly owned. At this exact com- uh, this exact convenient moment... Uh, Scotty shows up with a bunch of security officers, and they literally, the day- <laughs> they literally like round a rock, like, "Hey, we're here, the cavalry," <laughs> and the day is saved. Question mark. Anyway, none of that really matters. Cut to the ship. The mining rights are secured. Uh, yes, because because the baby uh, has become high tier again. Uh, the baby is named Leonard James Akar. If you listen to this podcast before, that baby grows up to be Admiral Akar, who's been menacing the books of DS9. Not really menacing, but you know. Um, but he is being lo- looked after by LN, who's like the steward of these Capellans while he grows up. Uh, and then they all have a laugh about how the fact he's named Leonard James after, uh, you know, 
after uh, McCoy and uh, and Kirk. And McCoy, McCoy and Kirk are just having a ride on laugh batter, and Spock's like, you're going to be insufferable for the next month. <laughs> like, who knows? Maybe the baby will go down in history. Little did they know, he would be a major character in Star Trek. <laughs> he would be a major character so in Star Trek. Yes. <laughs> no way for them to know. This episode is nonsense. It's beautiful. I love it so fucking much. Oh my so, god. So a couple. So one thing. Uh, Ella N is played by Julie Newmar, who is most famous for playing or one of the actresses to play Catwoman on Batman the original series. Yes. Uh, she's great here. Um, please tell me, Jackson, about how Doctor McCoy endears himself to Ella N while she's pregnant and like <laughs> I'm suffering in the wilderness. So. We are introduced to LN by Kirk saving her life, and then LN is like, he has touched me. I have a right to see him killed. Uh, and Kirk just <laughs> responds with an amazing face like, oh, sorry about that. Anyway, they run off together, but she still is like, I do not trust any of you. You are all evil, and I will not let any of you touch me. And so... Uh, McCoy's like, no, I need to make sure the baby's okay. I need to make sure the baby's going to be fine. Let me, like, I'm not trying to do anything. And he's, like, trying to touch the baby. And every time he tries to touch the baby, tries to touch, like, uh, her stomach, she gives him a, a movie slap. And it's all very funny. Movie slap, movie slap. Uh, gives him two big slaps. And he just looks at her and immediately smacks her around the face. And then she loves him after that. She's like, oh, you can tell my baby is going to only be, like, is coming soon. No no one I know, no even woman has such a powerful touch. Only he may touch me. The child is yours. <laughs> as, as she's giving birth, he's like, no, the child does not belong to the tear. You must think of the child as your own. Break yourself. Because like, it tries to have, like, a feminist message from the man who smacked her around the face. And he's like, no, think to yourself, the child is mine. The child is mine. And she goes, yes, the child is yours, McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the 60s were a rough time for depictions of women oh my god it's so dumb it's not good i'm only able to laugh about it and have a great time with it in the fact that it is from the 60s yes like if this had come even like a decade later i would be horrified <laughs> And I still am, but um, God. An interesting note is apparently in the original uh, script, Fontana wanted Ella in to sacrifice the child. Like, be like, that child's not mine, and then kill it. And Gene Roddenberry was like, nope, no, you can't do this. <laughs> this is not acceptable. Uh, I like the fact that Fontana was writing a very serious episode of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> About giant people in, like, weird, like, fur bras. <laughs> <laughs> because oh. what they wear is like a unitard that covers their head and everything but then they have like they're like a tribal people who live in tents so they have weird furs but clearly they don't have enough fur so they're just like fur bras on everybody yeah everyone looks kind of like shit q but before <laughs> anyone knew what q was oh it's so bad and they have these very like their the, the like unitard covers their whole head except for their face and the giant ponytail that comes out of every one of their heads that is i assume it's their hair but it's never clear because you never see one without the the hood but is like unwieldy to the point where like it's at the square top of their head and it's just swinging around like hitting some of the actors in the face as they're trying to move and do stuff and their dialogue is all super super ridiculous as they're like it might amuse me i am tear i am tear and i must not trade with you <laughs> yeah it's like it's like somewhere between it's, it's like somewhere between like like the stereotypical mongolian horde and like roman legions <laughs> yep oh. it is peak star trek race it's the dumbest thing i love everything 
So what happened? So the plot actually is at this point that they steal this pregnant lady and it becomes like, I know that like the whole thing with Gene Reimer is he's like, I wanted to make like uh what's it called? Wagon train. Right. Yes. I want to make like wagon train in space. And what they basically do is they create an ambush at the end of like a box Canyon. They're like, we're just going to hole up here. And when the posse comes, we're going to get them with these bows and arrows and we're going to drop rocks on them. And, um, it is the most like Western setup to everything. Like this is just an episode of a Western that happens to take place in space. Yes. It's like the episode of a Western, but instead of knocking rocks on them, they aim their communicators <laughs> no, at so, each other. So what happens is they're like, so they're like, we need to find weapons. And then it cuts to later and they've just fashioned actual functioning bows and arrows, which is hilarious. No, it doesn't just no, no, cut no, to it. It but, doesn't just cut to it. It has a v- perfectly directed camera shot of uh, of Kirk saying we need to find some weapons and then it pans out to reveal the bows and arrows behind yep. um, and then they're, they're like uh, we can meet uh, Kirk I think it's Kirk that's like we need to uh, we need to like maybe we can sync up our communicators to create like a sonic pulse that will drop rocks on them and spock's like that is a very low chance of working captain and kirk's like well if you don't think it's gonna actually do anything and kirk and spock's like i did not say that captain and that exact construction where like kirk like dares someone he's like well if you don't think it's gonna work and then they're like i have to prove myself right to the captain happens twice in this episode because it happens with mccoy later too uh that scene is my favorite scene in the episode not not even for the lines but for after he says i didn't say that both uh spock and kirk as one, give a smirk and flip open their communicators. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is, it is super art. And then, like, as they're prepping for, like, the ambush, there's this actually amazing shot of <laughs> Kirk and Spock on the rocks. Like, yes. it's just, like, a big, wide environment shot. And one of them is, like, standing in the foreground and one of them is, like, crouched in the background. And it looks beautiful. Like, it's, it's like, actually a stunning shot in Star Trek. And it's so weird in the middle of this cartoon nonsense. <laughs> oh, it- it's so good. And then and then the Capellans show up and they fire bows and arrows. And these like sh- literally sharpened sticks that are using for arrows just are like ruinous. Like it's just arrows hitting, like it hits a guy in a knee in the knee. And it's the most like, uh, like Skyrim joke. The guy falls over clutching his leg. <laughs> it's so dumb. If you want to understand like why Star Trek is good, watch DS9, watch, you know, you know, watch the, the the good Star Trek and you'll see what it can be. If you want to understand why Star Trek is great. <laughs> if you want to understand why, like, for 20 years, people clamored over old tapes and syndication of Star Trek <laughs> until they made a new one, this is a good reason. <laughs> I am... It is episodes like this that is why Star Trek is mocked a lot, but also why you can't actually, like, take it down in the way that you can... I'm trying to think of... Uh, more self-serious easily mockable series like i would say star wars i guess but star wars has got its own kind of dumbness yeah uh, but like it is too earnest about its stupidity for like any kind of haha it's just a boring show takedown to have any effect like it, this is just what star trek is and it's amazingly dumb and incredibly fun and I love it so much. I, it is one of the most Star Trek episodes of Star Trek I've ever seen. 
Yeah. Uh, so two things before we back out of this. Uh, the B plot where Scotty is in charge of the Enterprise going after this distress signal is the most comedy version of this. Like Scotty plays running the starship like Zap Braddock he's just that character. Like oh. they get the distress signal and they go there and it's like, oh, there's nothing here. And then they get another distress signal and Uhura's like, aren't you going to do something? It's like an actual ship. We get the, we got the reading on who it is. And he's like, fool me once. Uh, shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. And then uh, Chekhov's Check like, that me. was invented in Russia. This is the first time apparently that happened because Chekhov is new for season two. Um, so this is the first time he has attributed something to being Russian. But also that Scotty would like put an entire ship's distress call in like, ah, screw it. We're going to go back to the planet is the most cartoon version of a Star Trek captain. I mean, he's right. <laughs> yes. But also like. Everything about captains in Star Trek is defined by they always do the proper thing. Like, even if they're violating the rules, even if they, like, fuck the Prime Directive, we have to do what is good and right. Uh, and the times that that is violated are, like, really important to the show. So the minute Scotty's in the chair, he's like, ah, those people can die. We need to go back to the planet. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, like, you're right, but it's clearly, it's clearly a trap. <laughs> yeah, but the way it's played is, like, the most lackadaisical comedy version of this. And what if he's wrong? Like, they don't know. It's not, I know, I know. I mean, in any other, like, I mean, they couldn't separate the saucer section. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- that ship can apparently saucer separate, even though they've never shown Fuck it. Fuck off. It <laughs> is can't. in the lore that that ship has saucer Eat separation. Shit. Eat shit. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's true. No, uh, no, it's not. Another thing that's interesting and it, memory alpha mentions that apparently it's brought up in like two separate comics um this is literally just kirk and the klingons f- like saying fuck the prime directive we're gonna go like get ours on this planet of people who don't have technology like mccoy's already been there like because he's been there like 10 years ago that's why they know about it but they just land here and negotiate a trade deal with like people who don't even have like carts like they just live in tents yep they haven't even invented bows and arrows yet they don't know what they are this will be the same thing as gunpowder they say you know but we're gonna like show up beam down and negotiate a trade deal it's pretty good like what is star trek in this universe like everything i recognize as the thing i like about star trek exists here only as like gestures towards something and the rest of it is like garbage but in the best way like you know in the best way i had a great time but man is it dumb we are going to talk a lot especially in the next section with the terrible book about the difference between good bad star trek and bad bad star trek this is the purest example of bad star trek there is an episode of enterprise that i watched recently uh where it's called a night in sickbay where um arch spends a night in sickbay it is a uh, a hated episode of that show it is an episode that is mocked relentlessly it is one of my favorites i fucking love it it's clearly it is clearly made by people who have watched episodes like this one a million times that have made a bunch of them that know exactly how to make bad star trek yeah uh, uh, th- this is the same thing when i watched masks and we talked about how delightful yes. masks is because it is just dumb <laughs> uh masks is definitely i mean i think that a night in sick bay is actually good yeah Mom. no no a night in night in sick bay is like i think actually a pretty good episode masks is very much like this and that it is just cartoon action all the time oh fucking masks i love masks i, love masks. I know you do uh, that 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 jar is not to riker's taste <laughs> 
we have to stop talking about Star Trek for a bit yes. so we can talk about more Star Trek. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, if you've not finished DS9, of course, punch out now. Uh, come back next month. We are going to, you know, talk about uh, Journey to Babel and Sarek. Uh, you know where to find those, you know, Netflix, whatever. Uh, it'll be a good time. And uh, come back after the break to talk about the worst Star Trek book we have read for this podcast. This month is This Gray Spirit, the second in the Mission Gamma series. This was written by Heather Jarman. Uh, it was released 7th of October, 2002. This book takes place in the year 2376. Jackson, where yes. are we in the universe? Where we are in the universe is we are about five or so months after Six the months. Of, six, okay, I was about to say six, but I don't know if that overshot. Six months after the end of DS9. Uh... Bajor is about to enter the Federation. The last book ended with the Federation confirming that there is a the probation period is about to happen and they are about to be formally inducted into the Federation. Uh, the Defiant has set off on the first official mission into the Gamma Quadrant. Uh, the crew of the DS9 is split between these two places. On DS9, we have Kira uh, in command. We have Ro Laren as the security officer. We have Quark as Quark as ever. We have <laughs> <laughs> we have Tyranitar, who is a um, Gem Hadar sent by Odo to learn about life in the Alpha Quadrant. Uh, is that it on the on Trier. DS9? We Trier. have tr- yes, we have Treya, who is a Dabo girl that works with Quark that is basically playing Quark uh, and and, uh, and, and we have partner. We have Golmaset. We have Golmaset, who is identical to Goldacart because he was a character also played by the same guy, uh, who is now the leader of the Cardassians and the like, captain of the Cardassian vessel. Trigger. Uh, on the, uh, there are more things, but they will become more relevant in this book. On the Defiant. No, no, have... no. Wait, wait, wait. There wait. is one character that exists on Ka- Bajor that I think right, is important. Yes, yes. <laughs> Casty Yates uh, is on Bajor. She is a very pregnant. Uh, and she, the birth of her child, the emissary's child, is uh, a key plot point that has been ongoing that we assume will be wrapped up in like four books' time. Uh, on our way to the Gamma Quadrant, in the wormhole, 
Jake Sisko still. <laughs> Jake Sisko went into the wormhole uh, at the end of Avatar Book One. <laughs> he is still there. Uh, as much as you can be anywhere when you're not in linear time anymore. You can tell the good books from the bad books because the good books, all the characters at like Jake is clearly in the wormhole and everyone kind of knows it deep down. And the bad books of everyone panicking about oh, where the hell is Jake. I also forgot on DS9 are four Andorians, one of whom is one of the Federation counselors, like one of the top politicians, and three bondmates of Shar, who is on the Defiant. They are hanging around uh, waiting for uh, their boyfriend to get back so they can all go have babies on Andor. On the Defiant, we have Commander Elias Vaughn, big boss himself, over a hundred years old, uh, Starfleet commander, has seen it all and done it all, and has decided to give up this life of being like a loyal Starfleet soldier. I mean, he's still a loyal Starfleet officer, but and go on a mission of exploration. And uh, he did this because of an orb experience he had uh, while on the Enterprise traveling to DS9. And realized that DS9 was where he was meant to be. And he is leading the expedition uh, to the to the Gamma Quadrant. He one, is of, joined... one of the orbs of Bajor, to be specific. In case someone's like, what's an orb experience? <laughs> we told people who haven't watched DS9 to tap out. That's true. <laughs> what's an orb experience is one of the... Low, I'm low on the list of questions I'm worried about people asking. <laughs> Fair enough. Who's on uh, the ship, Jackson? He is joined by First Officer Esri Dax, who, since the events of DS9, has gone down the command path uh, and is beginning to uh, get used to or explore what being a joined trail means. Uh, we have Dr. Julian Bashir. He's Bashir. <laughs> <laughs> they are in a doomed relationship that is still going, even though we predicted it would end ages ago. Still going. What if it doesn't end? The inertia of the finale of DS9 is real. It's been six months. It should have ended already. <laughs> they keep finding excuses for things to happen to them that draw them closer together. Though, not in this book. Oh, God. Uh, we have Anson Nog. He's Nog? <laughs> Share Nog, basically? He, he, is, he is the chief engineer of the Defiant. Yes. Thank you he very is chief much. Was it, he wasn't chief. Oh, right, because Miles was chief engineer, and then Nog replaced him. He was just a... Right. Yep. Uh, so Nog is now chief engineer of DS9, and uh, he is in absence on the Defiant. Uh, we also have Shah, who is an Andorian officer who has tensions with the ways of life on Andor and so left his bondmates to become a Starfleet officer and is resisting going back home. Previous books dealt with his uh, like refusal to go back home and his bondmates trying to bring him home, and it's a, it's a, it's an ongoing plot. Uh, he is currently like vaguely promised to go back after he uh, finishes this mission, but in the kind of way of like, oh, I'll do that after this. So everyone's a bit, <laughs> no one feels very satisfied. Um, is that it? Do we have anyone else? We no, have, you have one more Prin person. Temme, yeah. yeah, good job. Who is uh, Vaughn's daughter. The last book was all about, or was partially about their relationship Uh they used to hate each other before going to the Defiant Quad, uh, the Defiant Quadrant, before going to the Gamma Quadrant. But they've mostly patched things up. Printemme is just an ensign who is very good. She's a pilot. She's very good at being a pilot. Uh, that is, I think, the state of things. So that's where we're at in this universe. Uh, what is happening now is the Defiant is just tooling along, going through this area, and suddenly 
they are attacked and they're not sure by what. The damage is extreme and it's from this like sensor web of like a bunch of nanobots that just fuck anything up that gets in the web and they are being laid by the Cheka who are this hostile alien race that are using them to basically create like an embargo on this planet. I don't remember the name of the planet, but uh, the people who live on it are the Eurynth- Eurythne? Eurythne. I've they been saying like, Eurythne. Yeah, Eurythne. They are uh, aquatic lizard type people and they show up and help the Defiant. That's just like really fucked up because you cannot open a Star Trek book without the Defiant getting fucked up, apparently. It's uh, not allowed. <laughs> um, it's too good. You have to ruin it every time. Um <laughs> Like, come to our planet, you know, we'll we'll, fi- we'll fix it, we'll figure it out. And they get there, and everything is, like, already kind of suspect, because they keep telling them things, and then, like, the things they tell them aren't actually true, or they go back on their promises, and it's weird. The Eurythne situation is that they want the help of the Defiant, and do they want, do, what do the Eurythne want that, like, lead them to take them to the trade place? Do you remember? Uh, they don't really. They just want them to help. They just because there's this point where they're like, "Oh, y- y- we offered to help, but you guys don't have any money, and it's weird. Like, what do we do? Uh, we can take you to the trade place to get the supplies, but we don't have them. But I feel like they wanted something, and Vaughn wouldn't give it to them. But I don't. Well, the, the trade place wants the oh, cloaking. Device. I know what they want. So. The Arithni are in this weird situation where they are, they have a caste system of the Houseborn and the Wanderers. And, like, they make eggs, and then the eggs, like, hatch, and the babies go out in the water of the oceans. And then they come back to their houses. But some of the babies are carried on the tides and go into other houses where they're taken and become Wanderers. that are, like, the servant class. And there's a lot of question of... The planet's in this weird state of friction where the Wanderers are upset because they don't have full rights, uh, even though they have some representation in government and are kept down as, like, a lower class. And they want the ability to, like, serve in the army and have babies because they're all, like, uh, forcefully sterilized. And it's really shitty. And they decide that the Defiant came as, like, a religious sign that they have an ability that they can mediate the discussion and find a way out of their predicament and their social tension. And they think the person to do that is one Esri Dax. And they're like, we need Dax. You need to give us Dax so she can mediate this. And Vaughn's like, well, you're helping us and we need to go to like the trade station on in this se- sector to get the supplies we need to defeat the sensor grid that's killing us. So uh, we'll leave her here with like Char to keep her company and we're going to go and uh, negotiate this trade deal. So they do that. Ezri and Char spend their time ingratiating themselves to the people of the planet. Uh, Ezri hangs out with all of the houseborn and gets shown, like, she basically goes, like, jet skiing and hangs out in, like, beautiful palaces and has a great time. Meanwhile, Char is being dragged to, like, underground uprising movements and seeing the plight of the people and visiting invalid homes. And uh, it's it's a lot. We'll get to it. Anyway, uh, Ezri is like, maybe everyone who's a wanderer should just go to space. That's my solution. And Char's like, maybe we should stop being space racist and I can prove it with eugenics. Uh, <laughs> and that's a solution, apparently. And meanwhile, the uh, Defiant goes to this trade station. They put in their bid uh, and it's rejected, but it turns out that it was actually accepted. But the Cheka, who are the people who are brigading the Urinthi planet because they want their babies to like reverse engineer them because their biology is special um well the turnkey you see yes they have they have something called a genetic turnkey that would allow uh that would allow uh any race that has enough by like bioengineering talent to maybe use it to like rapidly breed citizens like people 
And uh, Char's like, hmm, maybe this is actually helpful for the Andorians. Maybe I could use this information for my own gain. Anyway, uh, the Cheka are want these babies to like make soldiers, basically, and they're not giving babies. Anyway, they have the deal, and Vaughn goes to meet them, and they're like this horrible spider person thing, or one of the Cheka is, and they're not going to give it. And there's this dumb plot that involves Printenme like posing for an artist, uh, and. Nog being a fake trader who's going to give them a cloak because what they want is a cloaking device schematic because that's rare technology and like we can't give them that because th that's from the Romulans. <laughs> anyway, uh, they they have a hatch a plan, blah blah blah. I don't know. They get their stuff. I don't remember <laughs> how. I literally just don't remember how. And they come back in time for bullshit happening where like the. One of the leaders of government is actually working with the militarized uprising that is going to steal babies from the houseborn and give them to the Cheka to get weapons to like fight an upright, like create an armed resistance underground on the planet. And Ezri's trying to talk them out of it because Ezri needs to do that. And the Defiant shows up just in time to save everyone who needs saving. Uh, and the day is saved because Char has decided, actually, your planet isn't like this, and we can use genetic engineering to prove racism is bad. Uh, and they do. Yes. <laughs> uh, Meanwhile. I think, uh, no, one thing, there's one important plot point that we need uh, still in the uh, Defiant Half, because the Defiant Half is pointless. Nothing happens. Nothing fucking I, happens. Okay. Uh, there's one crucial plot point, which is that Char... Uh, has been given the Star Trek plot of vaguely falling kind of in love with the Resistance leader, but not really. And oh, oh, Karen. The, yes, <laughs> no, Karen. Karen. Lara Croft. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, falls in love with her, but not really, because her boyfriend is actually the the one who's committing all the evil crimes anyway the point is through the experience through learning about the potential for andor through the like dreams he has as he explores what his feelings are he realizes that after this mission is done he truly does need to go back to andor he misses his bond mates so much he misses thris so much that he will he sends a letter back home and he lets them know that truly they are meant to be together and it will happen for real also, uh, Karen gives him a sack of dead babies. <laughs> <laughs> and then Karen literally gives him a sack of dead babies. We're not exaggerating. <laughs> so the, the plot of the, the bad guy, whatever, I don't even remember his name. Anyway, it's to steal the <laughs> eggs to give to the, the Cheka. The problem is the eggs in transit all died, and they don't have any use for them on Urinthi because they're just dead babies. So she's like, maybe this will help your research. I'm going to give you these dead babies. And so Char just has a bunch of dead babies. Like, they're probably giant tadpole eggs, so they're not, like, actually dead babies, but they're also just a bag of dead babies. <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I, that happened to me, and I was so numb by how terrible this book is uh, that I was, um, I didn't even, didn't even register to me that she had basically said, "Oh, go home to your own love. Here are these dead babies to send you on your way." <laughs> <laughs> Literally, what happened? God. Anyway, meanwhile, meanwhile <laughs> on DS Nine. Quark and Roe are sad about the Federation uh, coming in and ruining capitalism still, always, forever. Nothing actually advances on that plot front, really. You started um, talking about all the stuff I cared about, and then I was like getting angry about how this book ruins everything again as just hearing it. <laughs> um, the 
a Cardassian delegation led by Golmaset and Natama Lang, who is the ambassador who she fell in love with Garrick, right? In the original series, in the show. No, no she's with she, that's that's Tial. Uh, she's with like she's like had a thing with Quark. Oh right, Quark. Right, right. No, yeah, you're right. Sorry. Um, uh, I don't remember late DS Nine very well. Um, you're gonna get there soon. You're gonna rewatch yes, it. Eventually. Yes. So anyway, uh, Natama Lang, who is with Quark, they show up as part of the delegation to like get supplies from Bajor because Bajor is supposedly spearheading the reconstruction effort on Cardassia as like a goodwill gesture. Um, but the talks are really bad. They're not going great. And uh, Lang has this plan to help bridge the gap. And to do that, she is going to, she brought with her all of the artwork of the late Tora Zial, who is Goldicott's half Bajor and daughter um, who was killed in the course of DS9. And uh, they're going to display that artwork on DS9 as a gift to the Bajoran people uh, to demonstrate the future that they can forge together um and everyone's very moved by it um except for uh the people in charge of the bajoran delegation who are like oh i don't know and uh like weird things are happening like there's a there's a cardassian flag that's like pinned to a chair like burnt up with a knife in the conference room kira walks into the conference room and on the like chair at the top of the table, the Cardassian flag has been draped over the chair and a knife has been stabbed through it with like a Bajoran word for kill on it or something stupid. Uh, and it's very clear that someone is trying to stir up old tensions. Who could be doing this? What could be the plan? So she's like trying to deal, like she's trying to figure out if Maset is like actually shady or not. Like Tyranitar's cloaked and looking for him are like following him and there's like this huge fight between the Majorans and the Cardassians on the station that like turns into basically a riot that they break up and that's when Kira is like I maybe Maset solid because he seems to actually be mad that it, the Cardassians got in this fight in the first place and they have this meeting in this art gallery of this art that uh, Zial had made and he she he's like we've been stymied by the Bajoran uh Com- like delegation at this conference they're not they're not actually helping us they say a lot and then they pull out and they, they 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 won't commit to the aid we need and she's like i'll see what happens and so she goes to investigate meanwhile all of that artwork gets attacked by like vandalism that is like clearly someone from bajor doesn't like this art blah 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 and it's a sad moment for culture and a sad moment to see zial as a character degraded in this badass this fucking terrible book um anyway uh she's like maybe it's this lady who's like fake kira who's like leading the delegations like oh she's just like you kira but she's like tough and strong-armed these uh cardassians and she's like she goes to meet her and she's like no it's not me maybe you should go talk to shakar who's like the leader of the bajorans we've met him in the prior books and she runs into shakar and shakar presented with the evidence is like yes no i don't want to help the cardassians it'd be easier just wait until we're in the federation and let that happen she's like by then millions of cardassians will probably die because they need our aid and he's like that's not my problem that's their problem maybe they shouldn't have invaded us well it's it's not even that it's like it's less about the the um, concrete reality of what's happening. It's more on like, oh, once it becomes a Federation problem, then like there is no closure to the Bajor-Cardassia situation. We need to deal with this on our terms, is Kira's yeah. argument. And Shakar's like, no, that's a waste of resources. That's dumb. Why We just need to forget about it and let it become a thing. Um, Yeah, and that's, uh, Shakar is revealed to be like, oh, I'm, I don't want to help the Cardassians, and Kira clearly is like, I'm going to help Golmaset, I'm going to try to get this done, and I'm going to team up with this fake Kira, whose name, sadly, I did not. Uh, Asaram Wadeen. Okay, thank you. Um, She's she's just another, like, tough resistance lady turned politician like Kira. Uh, It says she's black, right? Like, that's the difference? I think so. 
Yeah. Um, and I, I'm really, as much as I hate this book, I'm really glad they did not play. This is like Kira, but like a tough black lady as like the actual evil person that they had initially intended. Though the fact that they even tease it sucks. Yep. Uh, anyway, two more things before we're done. One. Meanwhile. <laughs> meanwhile, the part that actually probably isn't like the part that you might have forgotten, but is in the memory uh, alpha description. And I had forgotten until I read it. Vedic Yevir, that asshole who had like attained Kira and was in the uh, Avatar books and blah blah blah, meets Cassidy Yates while Kira is visiting her, and there he sees a Bahala figurine that she that Cassidy Yates was displaying and has like this religious moment. He's like, "Oh, this is exactly what I came to sought. I have I have an awakening. I know what I can do," and asks for the figure. And Cassidy Yates is like, "Yeah, sure. I don't want this shit. Get out of here." Um, and he leaves with it, probably to menace a future book. Uh, he doesn't say what it is he figured out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's very nebulous, and I, I assume from past experiences it might be bad, but who knows? Maybe he won't be bad. I don't know. <laughs> I've read the blurb of the next book. We'll get right into it, I'm sure. Okay. Um, last thing. Mean while <laughs> there's the... a new person on the station. Wait, yeah, that's what? part of this plot as well. You forgot about her. You forgot about whatever her name is. I, I have no idea what you're talking about, Jackson. Uh, what's her name? The the new the 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 the, the new uh, therapist, the new counselor. Oh God! Right? Yes, there is a new <laughs> therapist on the ship. Do you have her name? Fucking no. It's uh, definitely it's not Harriet, but it's definitely a name that can be abbreviated to a boy's name. <laughs> Philippa Math Matthias. Right? Because everyone calls her Philip, and I hate it. Yes. <laughs> Um, she is an, she is, she's human, right? And she's married to a Bajoran. Yes, she is human, married to a Bajoran. Yes, and she is the new counselor on the station. Um, she is dealing with, uh, Thriss, who is one of Char's bonding pair. Um, the way the Andorians work is there's like four genders and all four genders have to come together to form Captain Planet. Oh, sorry, Andorian <laughs> babies. Uh, <laughs> Yes. Uh, and because that's a four people in a relationship is like high drama and a mess, there aren't very many Andorian babies. Actually, it's implied that like the baby, it's just hard to conceive generally, but also you have to form a bonding pair of three other people. So that doesn't pair, make things easier. There's been genetic problems. And this book, which maybe this is a thing in, in places where the Andorians have appeared before, but this book starts making the bonding stuff like have physical ramifications it's not just the you know a, a relationship with four people uh yeah. thris uh, it is revealed that thris and shah uh basically had sex together which is not a thing you're meant to do when you you meant to all four of you get together and do that but yeah they, the implicate the implication is like it created like almost like an imprint on both of them that like changed their like psych physiological makeup to where like Thr because thris hasn't had babies yet the end but she's hooked up she's like like actually like physically breaking down and like depressed and horny like, is driving her insane <laughs> i assumed it was more that she had not like she hasn't had babies yet like it, it like sent her into baby making mode before but she has no babies okay i feel like another it depends the same thing it depends which nuance to being stupid and sexist and dumb towards mental health you want to take but it, the result is identical <laughs> meanwhile char is apparently fine i don't know <laughs> 
Well, the thing that's the thing that's stated is that uh, of the of the like weird gender stuff of the endurance, Thris was going to be the one that carries any babies that are created, right? Like that's the reason that this is affecting her and not everyone else. Well, she's the one that will like give birth. All of them carry yeah. like the baby goes th- through all of them at a point, but she is the one that finishes the four by one hundred. Wait, does it? Is that true? Yes. Is that what yes. it says? Okay, how does that work? I don't know, but like there's, there's I thought, I thought it just needed all four to like conceive. I just there's, assumed there's a line where like Anishet is talking about how it'll be like I, it'll that is a baby that will pass through me but she will conceive it and like give it to or like give birth to it and that is a greater privilege and she doesn't seem to understand this privilege she has so anyway um uh she's very depressed and she starts a fight in quirk's bar like she stabs one of the other bond mates uh it's a mess and uh philippa is there to like try to talk her down uh Char's letter arrives with Vaughn's communication. Because the thing is, it's like tucked into Vaughn's like report back to Kira of what's going on. The problem is the report Vaughn sent to Kira is like highly classified. So it has to be read by Kira, detangled in like from that and given to them because it's like at a high security clearance. And Kira is dealing with the plot of like, oh, the Cardassians and the Bajorans are about to like actually start a riot on the station. So she doesn't see it. And so they don't get it. And by the time the uh, Defiant plot wraps up and uh, Char's like, I need to go back. I'm just going to go back to the station and say I'm ready to make babies. Thriss has killed herself in despair. (laughs) And this happens in the final 20 pages of the book where, like, everything is settled. settled, And then the epilogue happens and Char is back and everyone's like, I'm sorry, Char. We tried to help her, but she's already dead. And it's the fucking worst like not only do they kill a character because she's too depressed that she's not pregnant they do it in between a like chapter break as like as like a it's meant to be like this i'm convinced that the intent is it is a tragic reveal of these two characters who have been separated and discover like shah discovers the truth of himself but through uh the tragedy of circumstance it gets to her too late and it's just meant to tear your heart out as you thought everything was okay like that kind of device but it's too kind of like clumsily done for that even to come across so it just feels like they forgot to write the chapter where she had any thoughts about it yep there's only one section of the book where we actually get into thriss's point of view it's almost all like the therapist uh talking to someone else explaining how thriss feels or uh um what's her name uh charavethra uh yeah or her like who is uh essentially uh shah's mother um or like Javet, or but she's shah's mother that's how they deal with it Shah's um, parent i always go with parent parents are right the right word but I, I don't know i feel like i don't need when the book and the universe i know of Star but Trek, i would i would like to treat like i would like to treat this issue with more delicacy than these fucking books do sure i feel like i want to represent how much they don't even try to care about the four genders thing i want <laughs> to be better than that <laughs> you're right you're right anyway so uh Charles parent and is explaining everything and the delicacy of the situation basically saying okay we need this dealt with we can't let anyone know about this because i am uh off status and this has to be kept under hush and we can't have this affecting this and is like asking very difficult things of Roe as a security risk and so it's all done through other people's perspective and then she just dies because she's too sad that she can't have babies the weird thing is I feel like the one chapter that's from her point of view doesn't depict her as that despairing no it is it isn't because it's when she's in a good place but like I feel like it implies that she's like 
she recognizes that she's unstable, but like these people just don't understand that that's how she's dealing with a difficult situation and she'll be fine as long as they fucking leave her alone. It's that and it's also that like she knows in her heart that Shah will come back. It's fine. She knows that will be a true thing. And the implication is that not receiving the letter in time broke her and thus she died and killed herself. But the letter wasn't even like a normally scheduled, like he's like, I wrote it special extra this time. Like it wasn't even like a scheduled letter that was missed or something. Yeah, I don't, I just, it's re- it's a really bad book. This is a really bad book. <laughs> yes, no, that, that we can agree upon. It is bad. So let's talk about the fucking fish people. Let's just. <sighs> so let's pause it. Let's pause it. In all of the world of space and the allegories it represents, let me yes. ask you a question, Jackson. Yes. Is racism bad? Hmm. I don't know. What does science say? What <laughs> if, what if we could prove that there's a genetic difference between one race and another? Does that make them different and separate enough that all of the prejudices are justified? Who can say? There are many sides to make. I think we should consider all sides before. Esri Dax and Shar. If you ask them in the course of this book, if their genetic testing proved that the Houseborn and the Wanderers were actually different and the Wanderers were genetically inferior to the Houseborn, it would be fine if the Federation is like, yes, your racism is good and valid. And they flew off into the stars, leaving this planet to fucking suffer under this awful caste system. That is what this book posits as like the thing the Federation would do. Hate it so much the federation ruins like functionally good planets because they disagree with their form of government it is all talk about like oh the prime directive and the, the prime directive okay the prime directive only applies to species who are not spacefaring it is like yes. it isn't it isn't a, it isn't about the federation don't want to spread their worldview they do they always do that's what star trek is the, that's like what the scene in quark's bar where they talk about uh uh Root beer. Root beer is. They're like, that's what they do. That is the Federation. It's not to do with them not wanting to influence things. It's to do with like not wanting to push species that have not organically reached space into the intergalactic community. It's a, it is a different issue. They totally would just say no to this. <laughs> yeah. Notable eugenics fans, the Federation. <laughs> yeah, no. The people that won't even like use genetic engineering to fix like problems that people can have like they're blind and stuff because once upon a time a bunch of genetically layered superhumans took over earth and now there's like a big giant taboo around genetic engineering thinks that if there's a genetic predisposition for, to justify the racism on this planet of fish people it's fine don't worry about it we're just gonna go you guys do you i think i did a tweet that was like <laughs> this book asks what if phrenology was real but only real enough to prove that it was dumb <laughs> <laughs> Like, Jesus. <laughs> the thing that's kind of amazing about this book, and the reason we haven't done the usual beat-by-beat beat summary, because nothing like nothing happens. It is. I honestly... didn't take notes because there was nothing to... Like, I would, the notes would have involved the part that the Defiant crew is passing around a fucking, like... Is it Vulcan or Klingon? It's Klingon, right? A yes, Klingon-like, Klingon bodice-ripper-like sex book. Yes. That Bashir ends up with. Yes. After Vaughn had read it. Uh, the DS, the Defiant crew play poker and it's shit. Yep. <laughs> yes, that is true. Uh, but the actual plot is like it's 
honestly impressive how little forward movement in plot happenings there are people just kind of move from place to place no characters make decisions no things it takes it takes 350 pages for esri dax to say what if the wanderers just moved off planet and formed a colony somewhere and that's the plan they're going to go with until char is like maybe racism is bad (laughs) the thing that is masterful about this book the thing that makes it elevates it to a stage that i have very rarely seen from star trek is that it is not just a bad star trek episode it is every bad star trek episode <laughs> yep it is it is aliens as an allegory for like social issues on earth but handled really poorly and ham-fistedly it is writer is clearly too into their own alien race that they created to actually care about the parts of star trek that matter which are the recurring characters it is bad alien gender metaphors yes bad alien gender metaphors bad alien race metaphors terrible space uh mental health issues <laughs> yes incredibly indelicately dealt with mental health issues uh incredibly broad diplomacy that has no real basis in any actual characters super dumb morality that is like oh justice is more important than vengeance like 101 style it'd be the better person bullshit that ds9 especially had got past at this point this is like early tng stuff that ds9 had like ds9 ends it begins and ends in violent revolution <laughs> yeah like it is not it is past that kind of like level of morality issues and suddenly bam here it is also also despite the fact that it's clear that like the de facto as like the plot is written in star trek if you want to make bajoran's villains they have to be part of the like they have to be like a wayward vedic that's how it works <laughs> but instead the actual bajoran government are ready to fuck over cardassia because you need a villain that is not another vedic because they're off being villains in a different weirder way it's a shame because the the tension between Cardassia and Bajor is like a, it's central to DS9 and it's things that I would love to see explored really well in these books and not only is it bad in this book but it lays groundwork that I think is going to suck in the future like it does things to Kira's character that uh, I like I, the, I don't know I think Kira makes it out of this book uh, the like outside of Vaughn the most unscathed the most unscathed but the way it plays her real like i am glad in the broad strokes that she is basically working with Masset to try to form a piece but the way yes. in which it's like she has like a line that basically is like oh i would not pick up the whip it's like jesus fucking christ yep no like uh because this book is all about its dumb like race metaphors it turns the occupation of bajor by the cardassians into like a slavery metaphor which it yep. never was no it's like it's either a like uh holocaust like nazi jewish people allegory or if you're like a more modern writer it is like a israel palestine allegory but it's only one of those yes it is like a specific state occupation uh metaphor and it i just like obviously because we talked about this last time like the tensions of in inherent to this kind of sci-fi when you bring in a metaphor for real world issues that especially are like grave shit it's always going to be kind of weird this pushes it to like the worst version of that in every in every opportunity where it can be terrible it takes it yes uh it's it's rough do you remember like a month ago when vaughn like had the realization inside of a 
like a sentient being in another universe that his entire life had had the wrong approach and he needs to let go and he needs to love his daughter and it was the most beautiful thing that had ever happened in a book in star trek yeah no i know remember when we went to a planet that was just like octopus people who communicated through their skin color on this beautiful like oceanline planet and then a moon exploded and they fixed it all in a chapter and that was just like a world they visited and we weren't mired in dumbass cast politics for 300 pages oh my god remember star trek star trek used to be good and now i don't know anymore remember last book when we were so excited about kira and ro getting together as like these two characters who don't really belong anywhere and have this deep you mean nog and ro shit (laughs) i mean I'm, I'm not just, gonna blink at Kieran Rogan together, but you, you fucked up. You said Nog and Row as well. Quark and Row. <laughs> <laughs> we both missed. That's also weird. Extremely hoisted. <laughs> no, Kieran and Row is way higher on the shipping tier than Nog and Row. Yes, Shout out to the fair. one person on Twitter who's like a Nog and Row shipper. <laughs> oh god, that poor soul. <laughs> poor soul. God, I don't approve of it. I don't approve. Uh, but no, like a Quark and Rose relationship was founded in this like sadness of not knowing where to belong in this changing world that is going in a direction that they d- don't agree with. All of that's gone. It's fucking wiped off the face of the earth. Luckily, there's no real movement with that stuff, so it's fine. Yeah, they don't they don't have time to fuck it up. Like Quark caters a gathering and Kira snaps at him and Quark feels bad. That's literally what happens in these plots. Like the worst thing that happens is that Quark gives uh, Ro a long impassioned... Uh, speech about why the federation is bad and it doesn't actually match up with anything about quark's character anything about the federation and anything about why he would have issues with the federation because <sighs> he just gives a long speech that's like oh the the federation has the has a fundamental wrong approach that you can't actually get rid of bad things because bad things will always exist like it's a it's ultimately futile bad things will happen so you must just accept the bad things you can't try to make the world better and it's just like a dumb uh idealism versus pragmatism fight that is stupid and not actually what quark's about (laughs) yeah no but i mean this is a book where someone dies because she can't have babies yet Uh, you're more incensed about that than I am. Like, I think that's I'm terrible. so mad about it. Like, <laughs> so part of it is, uh, I like Enterprise, the show. And yes. one of the reasons I like it a lot is because it does, it, it introduces Andor and Andorians in a way that like, they've always been like a central part of the lore of Star Trek, but they're, they weren't in Star Trek before that because they're too hard to do the makeup of reliably on a TV budget. Um, and I think Andorians are like fascinating, uh, because they're basically like what the Klingons became when they decided they wanted more Klingons in TNG, but as like a Federation founding member, like it's really neat and interesting. And uh, I was so glad these books were going to be like, we're going to get into the Andorians and what their deal is. And for it to be this fucking garbage drama, it makes me so mad. The, they took these characters that like the, the whole point of them and going through this like drama of oh he's gone away is for him to come back and them to be like a family and have these babies and then him to go out and as a dad on adventures and instead that can't happen because they fucking killed her off because they needed the drama in this book now i was i was just assuming that he would like eventually like eventually this would happen and then we would have dad shah like that was like yeah like the most obvious thing clearly that's where this goes so now we have like a fucking dead woman to motivate Char into being mopey for probably another three fucking books. Like, all everything. versions of this suck. Yeah, like, the reason, like, I think it's fucking 
one of the worst things that happens in the book on a book sense but i it doesn't mess up the star trek lore in the way that i was worried about with like i love quark and Rowe as characters if anyone fucks them up i'm gonna i'm gonna be mad but shah's like as a book only character i haven't like become that attached yet also this book came out like at the end of enterprise season one <laughs> Oh, yeah, you're right, I guess. But, like, we're not reading it that way, so I'm going to get mad about this. No, stuff. no, I'm not saying your madness is wrong. Madness is the wrong way, but I'm not saying it's wrong to be <laughs> mad. Madness is correct. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, but it is very clear that they don't have the groundwork of, like, there have been a bunch of episodes done about this thing to work on with uh, no. Andor at this point. Uh, this author comes back to write the World of Andor DS9 book. There's a bunch of, like, species-only... Uh, oh, no, 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 Jackson. <laughs> I was looking forward to those. I hadn't I hadn't made that connection yet. You didn't know that yet? Sorry. You've, you've crushed my dreams. You've got to hear me say it. My dreams were crushed <laughs> on cast. You got a recording of me being sad. <laughs> you could actually pinpoint the moment where their heart breaks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you, did you genuinely? That was just... Yeah, a- no, I genuinely didn't know that, and I'm genuinely upset about it because yeah after this first series it like so this at the end of this book where i was just fucking aghast that nothing had happened and then when things did happen they were all shitty there's the fucking author plate that is like it's like (laughs) it's like heather this is heather jarman's first published work she hopes to return to the universe of star trek soon and i have never fucking been threatened as much by a book as i was by that author plate it's a really bad book i hope heather doesn't listen to this because i don't actually want to be mean to heather Heather, your book fucking sucks. <laughs> I hope you got better because this sucks. I mean, if we enjoy the next one more, I'll be so happy to see to see it be better. I would like that so much. <laughs> and I know it's like especially poignant because we just came off of a really like moving and incredible book. But god damn it, I'm so mad. <laughs> yep. So couple things that we didn't really cover that are worth talking about. Esri is apparently, like, super confused about all her lives and keeps referring to herself as, like, Curzon and Jadzia and stuff. Oh, I hate it. It sucks. And Bashir's, like, Bashir's doing the thing where Bashir's, like, concern trolling her about everything because that's just Bashir being shitty. But in this instance, because they did this, now they've made Bashir right. Yeah, no, like, the, the arc of the book has basically, the arc of all these books has been, depending on how well it's handled, like, last book it was really good because Bashir's fears, like, came from, like, a real place within him, but now we're back to Bashir going, oh, you are, you can't be all these many people, you have to be Esri, because Esri's who, the, the, that's the person I want to fuck, uh, and then Esri basically goes off and goes, no, I must be Dax, I must do all these things. And then tries to, and then fucks up, and then remembers she is actually a mastered super counselor, and then saves the day, and then she comes back and is like, you are right, I have to be Esri, I can't be someone who I'm not, I have to be who I am. And then <laughs> Though the way in which only Esri Dax is equipped to save the day, not Curzon, who was a, like a consummate politician, <laughs> is that she does like hostage negotiation 101 with the guy who has them at gunpoint. It's like, I could manage to talk that guy down especially as like it's not just it's not like you're talking down someone who has got a cause that they really believe in that they have to see this through on like a moral level no, this is like this is like view. a sweaty coen's brothers protagonist <laughs> who just got caught on a really bad day with his girlfriend who also wants him not to be doing the thing like four <laughs> centimeters away from him yes. crying <laughs> it's 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 bad it's so, so bad 
couple things that aren't the worst that I'm like, this is fine. Uh, there's a really ridiculous scene of uh, Kira and Golmaset in the Zial like uh, museum where it's they're sitting on know, a like you know, a, not, you know, it's not just the Zial museum. It's Garrick's shop, right? Yes, it's okay. Garrick's shop converted yes. into the Zial museum. But they're sitting on this bench, like a like just a flat bench with no back, and. Uh, Maset is sitting on one side and Kira is sitting opposite him, like facing the other way. And they're having this conversation quietly about how they're going to start like working together and surrounded by this artwork of Bajor Cardassian fusion art. And it's dumb in every symbolism way. It's Superman sitting in front of the Jesus window in Man <laughs> of Steel, but Listen, it's like this? kind of amazing. I didn't think Star Trek could have like, I like Star Trek and it does a lot of like allegory with characters and plots, but Star Trek's not a show that I think of as like having visual symbolism and it's dumb, but I was delighted by how dumb it was. Uh, the, the the part that tragically we have to mention is it's actually not them sitting in the gallery it's them sitting in the burnt out attacked wreck of the gallery no it's before it's burnt out is it yes it's in the like very early opening when it's just like it's just a few people can come in <coughs> hang on I'm sneezing sneezing <laughs> alright Okay, I didn't know that. I, I, yeah. I, because nothing happens in this book, it's really hard to place when anything does happen. Yes, no, I know. Um, another thing I like is the Defiant is taken to this like trading consortium to like get the materials they need to beat this uh, fucking sensor web or whatever. And they go there, and they're like, uh, the Urinthri are like, you don't have a ton to offer. Uh, what if you offered your cloaking device? And Vaughn's like, no, no, no. We're going to offer maps. We've got maps. And I like the idea that the Federation shows up and all they have to offer, like a like a commerce-focused culture, is just information. We've got maps. And yeah. you're like, that would never work. And it doesn't, but not because it, they didn't accept it. They totally did. It was just plot happened that like made it not work. It was, yeah, it was... Like cause we were talking about that um, Quark scene and that monologue that he gives about idealism versus pragmatism being dumb. When the actual criticism he would have is the the fucking Federation show up to a trade outpost and they desperately need to do something and their best idea is to bring maps and that is why the Federation were, is like a fundamentally flawed idea and that's what like that's like what Quark sees of them and it's right there in the book and the book doesn't realize it. Yep. Uh then like Prince whole scene where she like has to fit a USB pen into a computer in order to make a while while like being painted by a weird gross alien uh while she's topless. Yeah. It's like the cool, And not being like not having a portrait painted of her being painted on. Yep. It's very dumb, but in a mostly good way. Uh I, I think I said to you that um when one of the worst scenes in Heavy Rain is one of the better scenes in your book. You know, you've yep. strayed from the path. This book was really bad, but we're <laughs> done, I think, unless you have something else. I I think we are free. I think we are going to move on to the next uh, book. I will say I am thanking all the Bajoran gods that there was not more Tyranitar in this book, because she would have found a way to fuck him up, too. Oh, because, yes, we talk about Tyranitar a lot and how we love him, and, and we haven't mentioned him once in the plotline, except that he's, like, um, shadowing... Um, set to make sure that Maset's not up to anything weird and he is but that is only revealed by him not being mentioned once for the entire book until 300 pages in where he suddenly declicks and Kira goes you've been following him and he goes yes and that's the end of the scene <laughs> yep. not appearing in this book 
Tyranitar. That's it. That's it. Uh, the, the, the best part about Tyranitar is he could not be appearing and be appearing because he is invisible. Thank you. It's true. That's it. We're we're gonna we're gonna cut to the last. You know, we don't have a musical break for that. We're just gonna talk about the last bit, but we're done. Fucking end this book. Apparently, it was very heavily influenced by September 11th, which means it's stupid in the way everything influenced by September 11th. We are 11th is. deep in like immediately post 9/11 stuff. Like everything that is coming out now is stuff that would have been like conceived around immediately after 9-11 it's so, gonna ruin everything i know we're gonna see it happen in real time i can't believe the enterprise at this time was good <laughs> okay jackson we yes. ask for questions and comments and oh, stuff shit, we have questions if people want to send us questions, where do they do that? They go to podcastadamnormapping.com. Put Star Trek in the, We'll know if it's a Star Trek question. <laughs> yeah, they don't, have to, they don't have to do that. We're not, we don't get enough email for that. We have three questions today. The first question is from Arcane Crystal. Jackson, the question is, what do they mean by Ferengi being so well acquainted with wetness? So there's a, there's a passage in this book that I put on Twitter as like the evidence that just didn't get edited, which I know isn't true because the editor of these DS9 books has like clearly been like the, you know, been very clear about what the plotting is and has planned all this stuff out and assigned it to authors. But it's just a passage about how, uh, Quark hated the wet. Growing up in Ferenginar, he was very well acquainted with wet. But more than wet, he knew that when wet was combined with cold, it became damp. Or I don't. It fucking sucks. It just a description of thermodynamics for a paragraph. Uh, it just. Means this is that, all because Ro takes him surfing. For the record, yes, <laughs> this is all because Ro takes him surfing. Uh, it just means Ferenginar's a wet planet. It just looks like um, the Camino. No, Fringinar does not look like Camino. Fringinar is Dagobah. <laughs> okay. I mean, yes, it's more swampy, but those structures are Camino-esque. Because they eat, like, tube grubs, and, like, they talk about, like, fungus and stuff. Like, it's a, it's a swamp planet. It's not an ocean planet. There's a big difference. Okay. I'm sorry for being wrong about lore. Uh, no, he does not appear in any of these books. He's probably <laughs> dead right now. Shut up. Lore is still disassembled on Beverly Crusher's like dresser drawer. This is pre B4. This is the year of B4, 2002. Oh, that's not lore either, though. Let's be real. That is not lore. <laughs> but sadly, it's canon, so someday we'll have to cover it. Next question. I have to scroll down. Sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was hoping you didn't expect me to have it because I don't have it. Uh, from at personal corpse is star trek racism allegory any better than x-men racism allegory the good thing about star trek racism allegory is that it is a new one every week <laughs> so yes um the thing so for me the thing about the x-men racism allegory is like the whole thing is, is like oh they hate and fear us because we're different um but in X-Men, they hate and fear you because you can pop claws out and control, like, the weather and shoot laser beams yes. from your eyes. Like, it buys into... Like, if you read that as a racism allegory, it's, like, about super predators, like, in a really gross way. Yeah, no, um, the, the traditional critiques of the X-Men racism allegory stand out. I've always read X-Men as more of a, uh, like, queer allegory, which is also dumb. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sadly, I have been queer forever, and I do not have any mutant powers yet. Have you tried not not having mutant powers? <laughs> uh, X Men's you okay? Hmm. I haven't read enough X Men to know for sure. I like X Men, even though I accept that it's garbage most of the time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the metaphor is not the strongest part of X-Men. X-Men is good because I like Cyclops. X-Men is good so, because the character is ridiculous. The thing, the, thing, the thing with Star Trek, though, is Star Trek operates on two different levels of race metaphor. <laughs> um, yes. So there's, there's the planet you show up to where the racism happens. And that's almost always kind of ham-fisted. Sometimes it's better than others. This one is particularly bad. Uh, The one on, like, Friday's Child was particularly hilarious. (laughs) Um, But then you have, and maybe it's not even, like, a race metaphor, but then you have the Federation is made up of humans who are, like, like, impulsive and creative. And then you have the Vulcans who are, like, cultured and logical. You have the Klingons who fucking wreck shit and, like, have this, like, very boisterous tradition. Um... And those parts of Star Trek were like the, and you have the Ferengi who are like, we are all about commerce and uh, lasciviousness or whatever. And those parts have their own racial components that can like often can be really problematic. Like there's stuff about do the Ferengis represent like stereotypes about Jewishness or do the Klingons represent like black culture. Um, And the answers to those, when you like think too hard about them can be really icky and it's worth considering in the ways in which that falls down and the ways in which sometimes it can be interesting and good. Um, a lot of that has to do with who's writing what episode on any given day, what it's yes. about, and what the actors bring to it. Like, the things Michael Dorn and the writers of TNG bring to Worf in that show about Worf being, like, a black character are really interesting. Mm-hmm. But when TNG or original series actor shows up in brownface to be, like, a dashing evil laughing man, it's bad. Yes. There are um, many ways you can go. <laughs> um, you know, uh, w- the one the big concern I have with Discovery is not that it is going to be a bad show because I like bad Star Trek as much as good Star Trek a lot of times. It's about what happens if you're taking this radical new approach to Klingons when Klingons mean it's like a very charged thing. Are they going to tackle that? Is it going to be handled well? Like that's the stuff I'm actually worried about with Discovery. Um mm-hmm. and so that's that's the part where the race metaphor in Star Trek can be better. Um is it great? Probably not. Uh as always, I wish as always, like hire more writers of color to write good things about these worlds, and you will get better stories. Yep, it is always true. Uh, and like Star Trek has the big problem of most Star Trek writers are white dudes. That is yep. has been true. It remains true. It sucks. Next question from uh, Chippy Trippy Jing: uh, If you were an omniscient reality warping being, which Star Trek character would you mess with the most? Oh, define mess with. <laughs> If you're Q, who do you torment? Who is your Picard? Yes, I understand that's the question, but like the answer is probably like, Q chose well. Like the answer is probably Picard. Uh, but if we we can't just re- repeat Q, we have to pick someone else. Yeah, so let's let's invalidate Picard. Picard actually probably wouldn't be my answer. Picard's uh, taken. Sure. So who would yours be? And then I'll do mine. I'll think of one. Oh God, um, it's so weird. Um. Because I, I feel like I could have a different answer for every Star Trek, honestly, and I don't know which one would be my favorite well, among them. Pick one and then I'll, we'll, I've got a little bit of time before I finish. Like, I would 100% mess with Archer. Uh, like, that, um, was, that was actually my first choice as yeah, well. <laughs> no, like, because he's, he's, he's not Picard at all, but he, is, he has similar leader-like qualities and I, I love him a lot. But he's also a huge idiot in a way Picard isn't and he doesn't actually know anything about being in space really yes but also he's he's too like he's uh he's like 
early human, like in the mm-hmm. way Star Trek thinks about like the way humans have become better in the next 300 years, yep. where he's going to be really pissed that you're messing with him. And that's gonna funny. Be so pissed. <laughs> uh, Pissy Archer is so funny. Do you remember when he went like three months back in his past because he got trapped in the year or whatever it was in the f- 4,000 years in the future? You know, oh, Archer's great. Yeah. Uh, uh, Archer is incredibly high on my list for sure. Yes, no. Archer was my felt like my like gut reaction. Uh, my second choice is probably Jordy because I would actually just want to fix Jordy because Jordy needs fixing. Oh, poor Jordy. <laughs> poor Jordy. Um. Yeah. No. Those are those are the. Yeah, those are, the, ones. those are the ones. I'm glad that you also picked Archer because I think it's, it's the, the right choice. One. It's clearly the right choice. Because, yeah. <laughs> like, it's hard to pick someone who isn't a captain because the reason it's fun to mess with Picard is because he's, like, in charge of a ship. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because you, you become a like someone who can undercut the authority figure and get away with it because you're omnipotent. Yeah, like, it's no fun. Like, you can't mess with Wesley. Or Wesley went off to be a fucking... Cri- I forgot about the... Tra- I always forget about the Traveler. No, Wesley messed with Wesley by going off to be a space lord. <laughs> That's what I mean. I forgot. I always forget that the traveler happens. Yeah, no. To Wesley. Yeah, he was so he was so mad about those space natives, and so into his vision quest that he ascended into a higher plane of being. Mess with Chakotay. <laughs> God, just erase Chakotay's existence, <laughs> fucking By God. Someday we are gonna get to talk about Voyager, and it's just gonna be ceaseless complaining about Chakotay. <laughs> <laughs> it will never cease. I hope no. Chakotay sucks every day. Every day. End this podcast plug zone. Let's go. Jackson, where can people find us on the internet? In my tragic uh, hubris, I thought that I had done that such that I would throw to you. <laughs> no, but you always do the plugs. I know. Uh, I am at Headfuls Off on Twitter. You can find our podcasts, our other shows at abnormalmapping.com. We have uh, Abnormal Mapping. It is a video game podcast that is at thebestgame.club. They've all got their own domains. Uh, I have the Amory score, which I do with Molly. That is a tour through the beautiful lore of Coheed and Cambria. It's so stupid. If you thought this book was stupid, you know what this book needs? This book needed mayo. <laughs> We can't talk about mayo here. It's, not, it's illegal. <laughs> it's illegal. That is at ineedmayo.com. <laughs> um, and we are also doing The Great Gundam Project. That is a weekly show where we go through Gundam. It is available through uh, our Patreon for anyone who donates uh, $1 or more to the Patreon, uh, which works as like 25 cents an episode. It's a good deal. Come join us through the Gundam. And yeah, that's it. That's those are the plugs. Where are you on Twitter? I've already done that. That was the start. Oh, did you? Yes. I didn't. I didn't. That's hear how that. I start. You can find me on Twitter at em underscore being. Uh, if you want to support the Patreon, go to patreon.com slash abnormal mapping. Any amount helps. Uh, there are rewards at five and ten dollars that are past just getting that good old Gundam podcast, but uh, there you should check them out. They're also good. Please uh, support, share with your friends. I do let's plays on the YouTube channel. You just go to YouTube, type in abnormal mapping, you'll get them. Uh, I am playing through Gabriel Knight, the 90s adventure game, and uh, a Castlevania game, Chronicles, from 2001. So that is it for me. Uh, we'll be back next month with the third book, third book in this series, Cathedral, Cathedral. written by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles. Those are made-up names. <laughs> they are not. 
Ah, oh, I'm so. This has been a day that apparently Andy Mangles is the thing that causes me to break. <laughs> it's been such. It's been a day. It's been a day. Okay. Is that where we're ending it? Is that really where we're ending this podcast? No, it probably shouldn't be. So that that's going to be the next book. Please look forward to it. Look forward to those episodes. I'm excited to get into Sarek. By the next time we podcast, Discovery will have come out. We will be doing episodes every week of Discovery. Oh, God. We will do episode recaps. They'll come out midweek whenever we can get to it. We don't have a firm day yet, uh, but we'll be watching those as fast as possible and getting a podcast out to you. I don't think those are going to be super long, but we'll see. Uh, I'm gonna get ready for get ready for discovery. In the first episode of that discovery podcast, I will open by talking about how I liked Orville. So that's going to be a fucking shit show. Oh God, that's going to be how that works, isn't it? Yep. No, that's it. We're done. We're done. Jackson, goodbye. Everyone else, see you out there.